2: Recorded in front of a live audience from the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Washington, it's Livewire! With humorist and writer John Hodgman, podcaster John Mualem, with music from Alan Stone, and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luz!
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to LiveWire. Thank you so much for coming out to the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Washington. Thank you, Elena Passarello. Uh, We have a great show in store for you this week. The uh, theme that we've selected is flights of fancy, which is going to make sense as we bring out our various guests. Uh, As we often do, we ask the crowd here at the Neptune Theater in Seattle to answer a question kind of related to that idea. We asked them, what's the most unrealistic thing on your bucket list?
2: Yes, a true flight of fancy.
0: Yes, something that you want to do while you're still on this planet, but that is probably not gonna happen. Right. right? <laughs> what's yours? Um, I gave this some thought today, and I think my most unrealistic bucket list item uh, is that I would still like to dunk a basketball during an NBA game. <laughs>
2: wow yeah I think
0: the laughter from the crowd who can see me physically (laughs) indicates to the radio listeners at home who can only hear me that this is a pretty unrealistic flight of fancy Um, the the maybe the saddest part about this bucket list item Elena I'm 43 years old I only really truly gave up on this idea about seven years ago Aww. But I was clinging to it into my mid-30s, which is, I mean, I'm not, that's like, it sounds like I'm trying to be funny. My brain is so weird that I thought somewhere back there I could still get it together. <laughs> and this is because when, when I was in high school, me and all of my friends, we were obsessed with dunking a basketball. I grew up here in Seattle during the Sean Kemp era. Oh, yeah. It was a whole thing. And all we did was we would like get a hoop, you know, that was you could kind of adjust the height, and we would dunk it at eight feet, and then as we grew a little bit or got a little bit more muscular or whatever, we kept moving it up. And the the thing that happened for me was when I was a junior and I was on the basketball team, I did have one extremely non-thunderous, very gentle dunk during a game. (laughs) I stole the ball, there was nobody around. I jumped up, I very, very carefully placed the ball through the rim while (laughs) grabbing onto it. It was technically a dunk, but I remember coming down to the ground and thinking, this is the beginning of my dunking career. (laughs) And this, the thing that I didn't realize in that moment, and this actually happens with a lot of things in life, that was the top of the mountain. It was never going to get better than that And I didn't really enjoy it the way I should have Because I thought this was the first of maybe thousands of dunks Right,
2: right, you'd finally landed the triple yeah. axel And yes. now it was just Olympics after yes. Olympics after Olympics Yes,
0: and it turns out that was the one and only time it would ever happen
2: I tell you what, I still believe in you And I think you can do it again I don't, I don't really I don't know what dunking is really
0: That would explain your optimism because it's really off the table, but it is still on my bucket list. How about you, Passarello? What's on your bucket list, and yet it's something that's very unrealistic?
2: I want to jump out of a cake.
0: That's very realistic, if the cake is big enough.
2: I thought it would be possible, and again, I, I do think that at 41, maybe it's the time has sort of left us. No, no,
0: I, I think that's, the 40s are the prime cake-jumping yeah? years. Everybody knows that. Thanks.
2: Thank you. And apparently this used to have some kind of, like, misogynistic, like, at a bachelor party, they'd be like, time for the cake, and then a lady would jump out in, like, a negligee. I want to do it in, like, a feminist way, like a feminist cake jump, so I'd, like, jump out, and then I'd, like, you know, tell a whole bunch of girls that they could be president or something. Like, it'd be be cool.
0: You're a professor at Oregon State University. Would
2: you ever enter the class in a cake? Would I ever not enter the class in a cake? (laughs) Like, finals week, can you imagine showing up for, like, a 9 a.m. final, and I just... Bust through like a bunch of scantrons in my hand. Would that be amazing, right?
0: That would. That would get you some good points on Rate My Teacher. Um, we asked the audience here at the Neptune Theater to, to answer the same question. What was an unrealistic thing on their bucket list? What were they, what did they answer, Elena?
2: Yeah, here's one from Elizabeth. Elizabeth's most unrealistic thing on the bucket list is to swim with dolphins, but I am a dolphin. <laughs>
0: That is unrealistic until they perfect that procedure. Uh, What else are you seeing on there?
2: Here's one from Tyler. Tyler's uh, unrealistic bucket list item, to go to a Seattle Mariners World Series game. (sighs) That's the... Sorry. (laughs) That's the
0: knowing laughter of people who've given up all hope. Um, Our theme this week is Flight of Fancy, which is sort of another way of saying a fantastic notion. That's exactly what our first guest this hour had. Some time ago, when he got an idea for a podcast, the idea was that he would take walks near his home on Bainbridge Island, Washington, and he would record the audio of the steps. That would be the show. The show is called Walking it was recently named one of the best podcasts of the year by the AV club. Let's welcome John Muallam to Livewire. John, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. When did you get the idea for this podcast? I think it was in January, I was taking a walk uh, from my house, as I often do, um, and it was beautiful out. And I took a little video, maybe like a five-second video of just the tide kind of lapping against this boat ramp, and I put it on uh, social media, and I just said, here's a trailer for my new podcast, 40 (laughs) minutes of me walking around, no talking. Then someone offered to uh, uh, buy an ad on the podcast, (laughs) and then I thought, well, I've got to make a podcast now.
0: Um, What are the rules for the podcast? Like, Do you have to take the same route
1: or do you have to go a certain length? Uh, No, I haven't really given it that much thought. The rules are basically (laughs) to minimize the amount of um, planning and effort Uh so that it's very difficult to do it badly. Um, There was one time when I had to do a take two. I was walking. It was early morning. I'd I'd actually gone on a, like a, it was a a sort of a bottle episode. I I drove somewhere and took a walk in a park and I put my hand in my pocket and I realized I had both uh, my car keys and my wife's car keys in my pocket and she had to go to work. So then I just started running back to the car and I was sort of like huffing and puffing and thinking that I read the ad in the car, I think. But then I scrapped the whole episode. I just felt like it wasn't up to the quality of the previous (laughs) previous episodes. It was too much, you know, breathing and uh, panic. That would
0: be running your follow-up podcast, (laughs) which America is not ready for yet. For those who haven't had a chance to hear this podcast walking, I just want to play. We have a little clip here we play for people. Take a listen to this. Hold on, this this is the good part. We have 47 more minutes, you guys. Stay with us. There you go. That's just a clip. It's a sample of the walking podcast. Thank you.
2: You know how like on NPR, there's like now like a voice that people do on NPR. Do you find when you're walking, do you have like a podcast walk, like a stride that's more performative than
1: when yeah, you're walking around? You know, I got the So the first episode I did was as soon as I left my property, I heard some people walking just up ahead and sort of chattering pretty loudly, and I was like, oh, God, uh, this isn't going to work, you because know, that's not why I thought the people would be coming to The Walking Podcast to hear some couple arguing. So I started booking it really fast to get past them, and I got so much uh, feedback, negative feedback, some of it a little bit impolite that I was walking too quickly. Um, so ever since then, I've, I have been a little sensitive if I feel myself hurrying up. I've tried to, tried to pull back a little bit, but like I said, I try not to get in my own head too much about it and just uh, take a a walk.
0: What is the recording gear that you use? How are you actually recording this?
1: It's really low tech. It's it's kind of like a homemade uh, operation. So I just use the little Olympus voice recorder that I use, you know, in my journalism work when I'm interviewing someone.
0: We should mention that John is also an award-winning and amazing journalist for the New York Times (laughs) magazine. It's not... um, as of right now, the Walking Podcast is more of a side project, in terms of his financial bottom line. Yeah. But what do you have? You have said you have this like Olympus digital so recorder. This little, yeah,
1: handheld little tiny recorder on the meeting setting because I think that captures a bigger kind of range around <laughs> it. And then uh, and I keep it in a in a wool sock. Uh huh. Um, and that's it. Wow. So people can't really see that you're recording. Uh, you don't have, a,
0: like, headphones on and some sort of big piece of equipment. I ask because, like, one of the things that happens during your show, and I've listened to a lot of episodes of It, which says something about emotionally where I'm at in my life, <laughs> but it's, you'll, sometimes you'll pass somebody and you'll kind of say those niceties that we all say when you pass somebody on the trail, and if I were in your shoes and I had all this radio equipment on, it would be mortifying. Uh, do you get looks from people?
1: Um... Well, it's not that conspicuous, but, you know, I live in a pretty small town, so word has kind of gotten around among some of the walking community that I'm doing this show. I was in the local paper. It was kind of a big deal. I was on the front page. Wow. And, um, but sometimes I've been out just walking without just for pleasure, and uh, I've seen people, and they say, oh, are you recording the show? You know, I say, no, no, it's just this one's just for me. And uh, <laughs> so it's, it's conspicuous, but not really. Got it. Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. I know it's hard to believe, but we got to take a break from this scintillating <laughs> conversation. This is LiveWire Radio, this week at the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Washington, with John Mualem. We'll be back in a moment. Live Wire is supported, in part, by Fully. Listen, you know, in your heart of hearts, that sitting around at work all day, that ain't great for you. But guess what? It's not just your heart of hearts. There's actually a lot of science backing that up which is why LiveWire partners with Fully, the company that believes people weren't meant to be glued to a chair all day. Fully has curated the best collection, and I've been there, by the way. I've met them, I've seen the stuff, and I can testify. They've got the best collection of standing desks, active sitting chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage us to move. Uh, I've got the TikTok stool. In fact, I'm sitting on it right now. I don't know if you can hear me rocking back and forth on it. But uh, the folks at Fully sent me this thing and it is just a dream. Uh, it's comfortable to sit on, but it keeps me engaged in the work that I'm doing, keeps the blood flowing, and uh, and it's really improved my life as I uh, work to host your favorite public radio show and podcast, known as Livewire, in case you needed a reminder. Anyway, if you would like to be better at what you're doing and stay more engaged, check out Fully. Get your body moving in your workspace by going to fully.com slash livewire. That's F U L L ycom slash livewire. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to LiveWire Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We're at the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Washington this week. We're talking to writer and podcaster John Muallam. His podcast is Walking. Um, I hope that in the previous part of our conversation, it didn't sound like I was being too dismissive of the show, because really and truly, I am listening to this podcast more than any other podcast in my life, and I think it's because there's a heavy ASMR element to it, which for folks who don't know, is this kind of new, it's maybe not a new way of listening to sound, but it's a new way of describing how people experience listening to audio, whether it's people walking, or someone brushing their hair, or just talking kind of in a soft Way
1: did you know that there was going to be an ASMR component to this when you started doing it? Um, no, I didn't actually know what ASMR was uh, until I put the podcast out and people said, "Oh, it's ASMR," and I just automatically assumed that was something bad and, uh, and looked it up. But uh, so no, I didn't. I didn't really appreciate that I was working in an established medium.
0: I just. I feel like it has to say something about where we are as a society. That some of us, me included, like to deal with our anxiety, need to hear a recording of someone else walking mm-hmm. as like a calming event.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really have any comment on that. I mean, why, I'd, I'd be curious when do you listen? Like, when do you listen to the show? What is its use in your, uh, in your life?
0: On airplanes, or sometimes while I'm walking, which is a little bit. Of a mind Whoa. bleep, because like if my steps are getting out of step with your steps, that could like be a problem. It's like
2: Inception or something, yeah. like it just gets so meta.
0: But I listen to a lot of, um, like I'll listen to a sound effect of a river rushing sometimes for like far too long into the day. <laughs> It'll be like two in the afternoon and I'm still listening to the thing I was listening to to go to sleep. So this really does have this kind of very, this has gotten so much more into my stuff than I meant it to. <laughs> this, it does have this interesting sort of like calming effect to it.
1: Yeah, I think that's cool. I mean, that's why I take the walks. I mean, I, always, I work at home. I work by myself. I take a walk in the middle of the day. It's like a good way to just kind of get out of your own head. And I think it's really fascinating Like when I hear from people... A, that they're listening to the show at all, and then B, how they're listening. I've heard the one woman told me she was doing physical therapy. She was an older woman who had, had some kind of injury, and she was listening to the show while she was doing physical therapy, like in a you know, ratty gym somewhere. Um, people listen to it on their commutes. People listen to it while they're working. I just think it's it's kind of amazing. It's amusing to me to make it, and it's definitely amusing to me that like people actually seem to genuinely appreciate it.
2: Does it feel weird because you... I mean, you're a, you're a reporter for the New York Times. You wrote one of my favorite books of all time, Wild Ones. You have another book coming out. You know, you've got these major projects that require years and years of work. And there's some people who only know you as the, the guy who, that I listen to walking during physical therapy.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a very unusual situation to be in, I would say. I mean, I think it's like I was sort of laughing on the way over here that this is... This the, is why we finally yeah. had you on the yeah, show. I, <laughs> I got booked for, for yeah. this, and, and it's been... I've actually done a fair amount of media for the podcast, which is sort of crazy. So, um, you know, I, I'm a serious person, right? I, you know, I don't want to uh, seem like everything I do is a joke, but, uh, but this isn't really a joke either. You know, I, yeah. right. it's amusing to me. It's yep. enjoyable, and it just seems like it's a, it's a good time, and it breaks up my day.
0: Now, yeah. the, uh, the, the season two of your podcast has what could only be described as a minimalistic theme song, which uh, your friend, a uh, guy from the Decemberist named Chris Funk,
1: wrote... Yeah, so we we intro we me and and you all the listeners uh, introduced the theme song for season two just kind of up the production value. Yeah, (laughs) Um, and I originally called uh, Chris. Chris is sort of like my my best friend in the music industry. So when I have music related questions and needs, I call him. And I I said I would really love it if like we could get Elton John or Katy Perry to do a (laughs) Walking Podcast theme song, and that didn't happen. But he, uh, he did it himself, and it's, fa- it's fantastic. It sounds really good in the woods. I usually play it out of my phone into the recorder. Oh, that's how walking. it's happening. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds great. It's very ambient.
0: Yeah. In fact, we actually have Chris Funk from the Decemberists here. Let's bring him out on stage. Chris? Hello. Chris... What was the kind of um, process for you creatively of making this theme song? Um, well, truth be told, I just finished a new solo record and I gave John
3: one of the tracks and didn't tell him that was from that. So I figured it's a way to avoid paying advertising
1: on the show by just to get my song on the podcast. Is this the first you're learning of this, John? Or do you know this already? I heard, I learned about it at dinner tonight. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's still really special to me. Yeah.
0: Well, that's good. Can we hear it, Chris? Yeah, there there is one part that is it, it was added on to make it officially part of the podcast. And see if you can
3: sing along during that part. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm ready.
0: Funk from the Decemberists, everybody. Um, we're talking to John Moalam. He is a writer. He has a podcast uh, about walking, wherein he walks around Bainbridge Island, Washington, and records it. This is Livewire Radio, by the way, from PRX. Um, you wrote a book about wild animals and also the the ways that uh, the, that people try to preserve or protect endangered animals. There was a story in the news this week, I don't know if you saw it or not, but it was from British Columbia, and it was some fishermen came upon uh, a bald eagle that had been captured by an octopus. And the octopus was had it in sort of a death grip, and they freed the bald eagle. Thank you, that was exactly my thought. I was like, everyone was celebrating for the bald eagle, but I was like, if you were to read the Octopus Gazette the next day, <laughs> It would be like we almost had one. Yeah. Yeah. That's the greatest day in the history of the entire species. And and we're celebrating that they just helped an eagle which is like a cow of the sky.
1: Get away!
0: Did you see the story? I, I did. See did that. you have thoughts on it?
1: Yeah, I kind of had this. You know, it's always there's always winners and losers. You know, we're always picking winners and losers. <laughs> whether it's deciding which endangered species to save and not save, or care about, and this is just the perfect example. You know, if if they had let the if they had let the octopus help the octopus eat the eagle, or take down the eagle, you would have had a lot of outrage too. So there's just, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no way to adjudicate these things.
2: Do you, uh, as somebody who's thought about animals for a long time, agree with the decision to make the eagle the national animal?
1: Oh, God. Well... I mean, you know, I'm not going to take a position on that. Only. Wow. I see what you're trying to do here. Yeah, sorry. <laughs>
2: I don't mean to yeah. put you into a corner there. Yeah. But uh, I mean,
1: I will I will say. So I was just remembering the other day, I'd, I'd at one point I found an essay from the 70s called uh, Our Most American Animal, I think it was called, and it was uh, celebrating the raccoon. And it made a really compelling case. Oh, yeah. yeah. No,
2: that makes for perfect the rac-
1: sense. So I would commend everyone to go find that. And if you want to start some kind of a movement, I think that would be great. Yeah, I would get right there with that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) All right. John Muallam, everybody, right here on LiveWire. Sweater season is here, but before it's time to unpack the knitwear, Alaska Airlines offers one more taste of summer with non-stop flights from Portland to Maui, Hawaii Island, Kauai, and Oahu. Aloha, Alaska. More at alaskaair.com. This is Livewire Radio. Our theme this week is Flights of Fancy, and we asked the crowd here at the Neptune Theater in Seattle, what's the most unrealistic thing on your bucket list? Folks answered that question and sent them along
2: to Elena Passarello. Uh, what are you seeing? Uh, Here's one from Donald, Donald's unrealistic bucket list item to travel back in time and see Otis Redding and Jimi Hendrix live at Monterey Pop in 1967. I mean, why not, right?
0: I would probably go New Kids on the Block to Dome, 1986, Hangin' Tough Tour.
2: Wow. I mean... I think it would be a pretty great show. Yeah. Uh,
0: What are are some other unrealistic things off of the audience's bucket lists?
2: Here's one from Chris. Chris's unrealistic bucket list item is to jump down an airplane emergency slide.
0: (laughs) That does look like the most fun way to escape death. Yeah. Okay, what else?
2: Here's one from Kimberly. Kimberly's most unrealistic bucket list item is to be cast on a reality TV show. I, we're down to like
0: eight people that haven't been on reality TV in America. What, Kimberly, you, I mean, it's going to be your turn soon.
2: If you were on, I mean, I know you are on TV, but if you were on a reality TV show, which one would you be on? Probably
0: House Hunters. You, you would be
2: a hunter of houses?
0: Yes. Yeah. I already do it informally. I'd like to go pro with it. Have you prepared? <laughs> Absolutely. I got a lot of opinions about the houses they're picking and not picking on House Hunters. This is Livewire Radio from PRX. Our next guest is a best selling writer, actor, podcaster, and all around amazing person who, to be honest, has this very radio show, Livewire, to thank exclusively for his incredible new book. More on that in a minute. It's called Medallion Status. Please welcome from The Daily Show and This American Life and TV ads and the Judge John Hodgman podcast, John Hodgman to Livewire. John Hodgman, welcome to LiveWire.
4: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be back. Thank you. This book, Medallion
0: Status, is wonderful, and it is like a lot of your books to me, which is that it's sort of ostensibly about one thing. It's kind of about airline privilege and guest lounges and things like that. But it's really an interesting meditation on fame and feeling in the in-club and also what it feels like when you're not in the in-club yes. as much. Right. Um, it's just a, it was a really interesting read. When would you say you were at the height of your fame?
4: Um, I, I thought it was when I was walking on, but I, now that I think about it... Yeah, please don't let it be now. I, I mean, I guess probably... Most people, most humans would see me when I was on the Mac versus PC ads. And mm-hmm. those ended just about 10 years ago, which is hard to believe. Wow. And it's been downhill ever since. So, but it makes sense. It's good to be back on the radio. This is where I belong. <laughs> Anyone who's ever seen my face knows just how implausible my on-camera career ever was. You know, I got, I got kidnapped by Jon Stewart to go on television on The Daily Show. It was never my plan. And the book, Medallion Status, is, you know, stories about what it's like to be a very famous minor television personality and all the secret rooms and exclusive clubs and airport lounges that you get to go in when you have even the minorest of fame, and then what it feels like to be kicked out of those rooms one (laughs) by one, slowly, until suddenly you're at a party and you realize you're not as famous as even the least famous Corgi on Instagram, because that Corgi is over there and getting a lot more attention than you. Mm You strike me as such a smart person.
0: I I found it very um, humanizing to read how much you really did struggle with, like, you're staying at this nice hotel in L.A., and there's a, a Golden Globe's party happening. Yes,
4: that's right. And I was not invited.
0: <laughs> and most, I think people who've maybe heard you on this American life or seen you on TV would think John Hodgman doesn't care about that stuff. Those are a bunch of Hollywood phonies, but you were in your room trying to text anyone
4: you could find to get you on the list. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, uh, th- this was a few years ago and I had been, and I was staying at this fancy hotel in LA where I'd stayed an, a, a many times before, especially during the the, the, the higher-on-the-hog days of my what passes for my fame. And I was not invited to this party. And I knew th- a lot of people who were invited to this party. And, in fact, someone I knew who was invited to this party, Paul Rudd, said, you should just show up. You know people there. You just go in. Just show up. And I'm like, I'm not going to just show up. Like, I'm, I may, fame may have turned me into a monster. But I am, uh, if anything, a fame vampire. I will, you know, get right up next to you and try to suck your fame blood to replenish my own withering relevancy. But you have to invite me in first. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not some fame werewolf just coming in and tearing it all up because no one will stop me. So I had to, I, I, you know, I, I, I had to stay in my hotel room and, and listen down in the garden from my my room as all my famous friends laughed and enjoyed the night away. And in the morning, I woke up and I felt really cleansed because the experience of being admitted to fame, uh, to any kind of status, is immediately addictive, you know. And when when you let it go, you feel you've purged something from yourself. And I went back down to the lobby where I was now allowed to go, and I was having coffee, and I overheard this conversation in the context, I understood that there were these three doctors who had been in town from the Midwest somewhere for a conference, and somehow they had gotten rooms at this hotel, and one of them says to the other one, you know, uh, Don, did you know there was a party here last night? And Don goes, oh, I, I, I know that, Dick, because uh, we came back late from the conference, and uh, we went to the party. <laughs> and he's like, really? How did you get in? He's like, we just walked in. Nobody stopped us. <laughs> we had a wonderful conversation with Bill Murray last night. I'm like, "Whoa!" <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you guys are doctors because I'm about to kill myself. <laughs> I need you to resuscitate me. We're talking to John Hodgman. His
0: new book is Medallion Status. This is Live Wire Radio. Um, the radio show that I think in a lot of ways is responsible for this book because... That's true. A, a few years ago now, it was about this time of year, we, we were looking to have you on the show, and you agreed to be on the show with pretty limited notice... And we thought, why is John Hodgman doing this? And then word came in that we needed to fly you to Portland on a very specific flight. Yes.
4: Well, first of all, I'm always happy to come here. I I love you. I'm always happy to fly here. And you're always generous enough to fly me here. But the thing is, you caught me at a bad time in my life. Because (laughs) the book Medallion Status, it is named for the, the status levels that you gain by flying frequently with a certain airline. But... You know, I, I had been flying back and forth across the country a whole lot for a TV show that I was shooting in L.A., and it was, re- it was really hard on me and especially hard on my family. My kids didn't understand why I was away, but it, all, I, it, it was all for the best because one time I was checking in for my flight and someone looked at my uh, boarding pass and said, oh, thank you, Mr. Hodgman, for being gold. Now, I had reached gold medallion status on this particular airline. I didn't even know it. That's a weird woo, but I'll take it. (laughs) I I didn't understand what was going on. All I heard was someone had said, thank you for being gold. And that was the most important thing that had ever happened in my life. Because I was like, oh, yeah, I am gold, right? That's what I always thought. I grew up wanting to be gold. I think I'm gold inside, but I'm always wondering, maybe I'm not gold. And Someone's going to find out I'm silver and I'm going to get kicked out. It's such an incredible privilege to be seen and to be affirmed in life. It doesn't happen all the time. Lots of people aren't seen or affirmed or recognized, even within their own families. But that was before I realized that gold isn't where it stops. You can also get to platinum and then diamond. And by the end of that year, after my family had suffered so much, the one consolation that I had was I was like 7,000 medallion-qualifying miles away from diamond. And the year was ticking away. How was I going to get it? Suddenly, I got a call from Oregon. (laughs) Yes, I said. It's live wire calling. Will you fly to Oregon on short notice to be on our radio show? And I said, hang on a second. Click, 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 click. I'll do it if you fly me on this particular route. And it has to be first class. And there was a long pause. Your pledge dollars at work, everybody. But wasn't it worth it? And, I, and it has to be first class, or else I won't get enough miles to make it to Diamond. And there's a long pause, and, and I'm like, I am going to hang up the phone. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, okay, okay, okay. So, you know, I cheated a public radio show in order to get diamond diamond <laughs> status. But and thank you for doing it. Thank uh, you. I mean, honestly, it was... Thank you for was... being gold. You're all gold. Currently, cur- currently I'm currently on platinum, so... <laughs> And I, and I don't think I think this trip was almost going to get me to Diamond for next year but I'm, I'm 500 miles short <gasps> okay. I was thinking that because the, the I, I know you can buy them <laughs> madam I'm not a cheater I'll, pro, I'll, pro, I'll probably buy them <laughs> yeah it's, a sick, it's a, You know, when, I, when my fame dwindled and I started chasing diamond medallion status, it was like just, just re, uh, replacing one sick addiction with another.
0: Well, I mean, I travel for work a lot and I know the impact it can have on the family and, and you write in this book about the real toll it took
4: on your family life to you be can, gone so much. I knew, I knew that it was, you know, our, our kids are, are smart and stoic and terrific and the best. Better than all your children. My kids. <laughs> Even the children you might have in the future. But that, But I didn't appreciate how much it was hurting them and really hurting my son that I was away so much to be on this TV show that no one was watching. That um, until, I, until I flew them out to join me for a break, a school break in Los Angeles, and we all went to Disneyland together, I was just trying to buy back their affection, as dads do. And we were there with a friend who was actually a cast member, and... This, this friend mentioned that there was something called Disney Jail. And Disney this was very interesting to me and my son. Like, what is Disney Jail? He's like, well, this is the place where we put people who get out of hand. My son said, Dad, have you ever been to Disney Jail? And I'm like, ha, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> what, what do you think is going on when I fly out here to Los Angeles? I was like, oh, this is terrible that, that he thinks that I am going to Disney without him. And I felt yeah. very sad about it. But we were able to commune because we started talking about... Like, if you did have to go to Disney jail, what would be the way to go out? And I realized, for me, the best way to go out to Disney jail is standing uh, uh, in front of the Tarzan treehouse. It would be me, dressed in nothing but a loincloth and a long, matted wig. And as people attempt to go into the treehouse, I would just casually go, oh, um, you have to give me $20. (laughs) There's a new upcharge. It's it's me, John Hodgman. Yes, this is what I'm doing now. That's how far I've fallen. (laughs)
0: $20
4: cash, please. Five is fine. Whatever it is. I just need some money to buy some sunblock because I have heat stroke now. (laughs) That's
0: only one of maybe two times in this conversation that I want to talk about you in a very sort of scandalous outfit. You talk in this book about imposter syndrome and this feeling of kind of people are going to find out that maybe you're not as talented or as whatever as they think you are. Yeah, (laughs) and they did. Well, I would,
1: oh, it's just
0: I would so disagree weird. with that, and in fact, you have been in some of my, like, Bored to Death Comes to Mind, you've been in some really great TV shows, and you've been really great in those
4: shows. I've been, I've been lucky to be invited to be on some great TV shows and, and do my, say my words and make my faces, and that's called acting.
0: Yeah, but you don't have any formal training with that, right?
4: No, that's why I'm an imposter. <laughs> I'm pretty adept at playing myself, or versions of myself. And what I learned very quickly as I was cast in these various comedies and, and dramas on cable or whatever, um, uh, I am uh, my role in all of television is to play a mustache creep, <laughs> a perv, an insidious con man, a ba- an evil FBI agent. A weird dentist a weird, right in the a, neck. Well, yeah, a weird psychiatrist who dabbles in dentistry with his own kids. <laughs> you were great in that, by the way. Thank you very much. That was... It's such a pleasure, and I I hope to do do some more acting. But, I mean, unlike fame or celebrity, which is about basically getting things for free, getting swag, getting invitations to parties, getting all kinds of affection that you do not earn, um, acting is really about giving, giving things away, surrendering to a vulnerable moment in a scene. And sometimes it means just giving up your clothes. And In Mozart in the Jungle, I was invited... To, to do a nude scene in this in this scene with the um, uh, with the, the star of the show, um, and I, uh, I I received a rider to my contract, and it was literally said at the top "nude rider," and two words. That was that my I never, nickname in high school. I know, right? It's like two uh, two <laughs> words I never thought should ever be together, but it's fantastic. Yeah. And in the nude rider, it explained in great detail all of the different parts of me that would be shown and all of the things that would not be shown. <laughs> and what was weird about the nude rider is that uh, it was phrased as though I had written it. It was in the first person because I was signing it. So it was basically like, I acknowledge that there will be no full frontal nudity, that I will be given a privacy belt to cover my genitalia. And my, and also I will be, my genitalia will be obscured by an oboe, which was a plot point. <laughs> All of which words, I also never thought I would ever, that was a promise I never thought I would ever have to make. <laughs> but it was, it, you know, at first I was like, oh, I'm, I'm scared of this. But, you know, being, being scared in life is usually a sign that you're, you're about to do something exciting and good. And it was.
0: We're talking to John Hodgman. His new book is Medallion Status. I was surprised to read in this book, John, that you mentioned you don't like writing, like you don't enjoy the process. No, do you? No, but I don't right. have any books out. You are—you were a literary agent. You're a really good writer. I was just—I was a literary
4: agent in order to avoid being a writer. I was trying to get out of it, and indeed, you know, a lot of—I'm uh, trying desperately to get back into acting. <laughs> so, so that I don't have to write anymore. But the truth is, writing is the most rewarding and gratifying creative work that I do because it is, it is discovering what's inside my head. And as I think for anybody, discovering what's inside your head is actually very difficult to do. You don't really think about what you are thinking about until you are forced with a blank page to just start putting down words, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh no, I'm a terrible monster. <laughs> And it's not, you know, unlike acting, it's only
2: you. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite because an actor is, is sort of coddled so that they can live in this kind of chamber and do this one thing that they yeah. have to do. But as a writer, you're kind of cast and crew and nudity belt. You're all of it, right? Yes, like, I am.
4: That's right. I am my own nudity belt. You are your yeah. own. <laughs> that's the title of your next book. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, I mean, actors obviously are going through an incredible psychological experience as they prepare for a role and then, and act in it. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's not also interior. Sure. But, but writing is, it, is really like just, uh, being open to whatever your brain spits out. And sometimes that's very uncomfortable. Well,
0: looking back on this, this, book now, uh, what do you think you learned about yourself?
4: I mean, they're all different kinds of status. I had a very particular weird journey through a particular kind of fame, Um, and, and yet there, there, there are job titles, there, there are positions you have in life and we lose status all the time. And when you are in a comfortable place and you feel, if you're lucky enough to feel a certain measure of, of, of status, privilege, it's what I learned is it's very quick that your brain starts telling you that you earned it Mm. when most cases, fame, status, privilege, uh, and especially wealth, are often just a factor of luck and chance and where you were born and what happened. Yeah. And, you know, when you, when you sit in first class for whatever reason, most of the time, for most people, it's because the airline bumped you up as a perk or maybe someone bought you a plane ticket for a professional job or whatever. And the moment you sit down in first class, you're like, this is incredible. They're treating me like I'm a human being. First of all, I'm in a chair that accommodates a whole human being. And so suddenly I, after all this doubt, suddenly I feel like the gold I always hoped that I was. I feel like a whole human being. I'm so lucky. And yet that's when the plane is taking off. By the time the plane lands, it's very easy to feel like, well, of course I'm here. I'm so much smarter and better than those dopes behind me. Yeah. You start, you know that you're in trouble when
0: you start to think that bathroom is for the first-class yeah, passengers. Yeah, that's our bathroom. You start to judge people that are creeping up
4: from coach. Yeah, exactly. It's not a good look. And then you look around, you realize, oh, this is, there's, there's, there's no particular virtue here. These are all people who bought their way in, one way or another. And like all people who buy their way in, they, they tend to be the kind of people who confuse wealth with virtue and status with intelligence. And And, uh, and then you realize you're here too. So... Can I get rid of this obsession with status? What happens when I don't get invited to that Golden Globes party? And the answer is, you survive and it's better. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I want to do the work that I want to do, but I learned a lot about myself through this experience.
0: Well, you may have hated writing this book, but I loved reading it. It's Medallion Status by John Hodgman. It's really good. <laughs> All right, we've got to take a quick break. You're listening to LiveWire Radio from PRX. We're going to be back with more in just a moment. Hey, special thanks this episode to Jim Pirrett of Northfield, Minnesota. Jim is part of the LiveWire member community, and he generously supports our show with a donation each month, which we're very grateful for because it's actually how we're able to do the show. So a very big thanks this week to Jim for keeping LiveWire going. This is Live Wire Radio coming to you from the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Washington this week. Our musical guest this hour has released three albums, performed on the Jimmy Kimmel Show, even served as a guest mentor on American Idol, which constitutes a pretty amazing journey. You might even say a flight of fancy, Elena, or what could have been thought of as a flight of fancy, considering you came from the tiny town of Chewila, Washington. That is the whole population of Chewila, Washington. <laughs> they just cheered. That's where he grew up, singing in his dad's church. His latest album is Building Balance. Please welcome the wonderful Alan Stone to Livewire. Hello. Hi there, Alan. How are you? Great. I have loved your music for a long time and seen you from afar at various festivals, but it's really great to have you on Livewire. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So you did, in fact, grow up in Shawila. Your dad's a pastor. You were singing in the church?
3: Yeah, I grew up singing hymns and gospel music with my folks. It's kind of how I learned to, to sing and play. And, but records were also like a huge teaching tool for me.
0: What did you listen to?
3: Well, i found R&B and, and soul music like 16, 17 years old. Like R&B, like current R&B, um, I had been introduced to probably via hip-hop and rap. Then somebody showed me like Donny Hathaway and Stevie Wonder and Aretha, and I had never been introduced to that. That's why I was like, whoa, what's, this is
0: really cool. I, I enjoy this. And then you went to Bible college for like a minute? Yeah. <laughs> Were you going to be a pastor? yeah no I was
3: I went to bible college and like was introduced to family guy all in the
0: same (laughs) Uh, how did your family take that do they know you're not a pastor (laughs) have they noticed you're not a worship leader right now
3: no, I, I, keep a, I keep a low profile really well. Yeah. <laughs> this is all intentional. You guys are just discovering me yeah. out of intent.
0: That's absolutely not true. And I know that because every time I'm in SeaTac Airport, I hear you on the PA system yeah. saying, Hi, this is Alan Stone. Make sure your liquids and toiletries are out of your bag. How did you get that gig?
3: <laughs> it's actually like my greatest hit song are those announcements. <laughs> because <laughs> I hear more about that than anything I've ever done in my career, like <laughs> uncles and third cousins coming out of the closet, like, are you, are you in the airport, like, right now, <laughs> currently, or is this a pre-taped thing that you're doing? <laughs> well, on that note, Alan Stone, what song are we going to hear? I'm going to sing a song uh, called Brown Eyed Lover. It's off
0: my record, Building Balance. All right, this is Alan Stone on Livewire. <laughs>
5: I got a brown-eyed lover on the other side of town. Wanna keep a waiting. Ooh, she got me upside, tongue-tied, twisted all around. Wanna keep a waiting. Last to just come and go Baby it came so fast my feet feel cold But my mind is for sure dead. And my heart remains so. Oh, she's got everything you want your bar to keep sharp And all my friends good She reminds me of my mother She wonders how my day went don't care about my paychecks Well I don't wanna keep my baby waiting I got a brown-eyed lover on the other side of town
1: Keep on waiting
5: What if she finds a man who's got so much more time for her than me on his hands? But that don't need she's Why won't she wait so long just to run away? Oh, she's got everything you want. Let's be pick the restaurants and all my friends and I can still love her She wishes that stuff would begin About where my next paycheck is Well, I don't wanna keep my baby waiting I got a bride and a lover On either side of town I don't wanna keep her waiting Oh, she got me I
0: That's Alan Stone, right here on LiveWire's latest album, Building Balance, is out now. Thank you so much. That's gonna do it for our show this week. A big thanks to our guests. John Hodgman, John Muallam, Alan Stone, and Chris Funk. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines Fully, Lagunitas Brewing, and the Jupiter Hotel.
2: Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing manager. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by Christopher Couture. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio, and special thanks to Dan Reinhartz.
0: Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts
2: and Culture Council and the James
0: F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members this week. We'd like to thank members Torrell Milbrath of Portland, Oregon, and Judy Clark, also from Portland. For more information about our show or how you can find our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.